0: Frisco, Dallas, Fort Worth.
1: EWTN Global Catholic Radio presents the Seven Last Words of Christ with Bishop Robert Barron, introduced by Timothy Cardinal Dolan.
0: kneel. We gather here on this Good Friday to keep vigil and pray with our Savior during the hours of His Passion. May the time we spend this afternoon draw us closer to the suffering Christ in order to maintain a reverent pace while praying together We ask everyone to please pause at each slash mark. Lord Jesus, you ask us to carry our cross each day. We have not always followed your teachings, your way of life, and yet you love us without conditions. Today we come to you in our weakness. Give us courage to stand by you in your agony now and whenever this year and that suffering enters our own lives, help us to do the Father's will and make us selfless in our charity towards all. Jesus said, "If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me." Lord, help us to follow you. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Lord, help us to follow you. Jesus said, unless you turn and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, help us to follow you. Jesus said, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are filled now, for you will be hungry. Lord, help us to follow you.
2: Good Friday blessings to all of you. And welcome, welcome to St. Patrick's Cathedral for this traditional treore, three, hour, three hours of prayer and union with Jesus in his Passion and Cross. Uh, during these three hours of prayer and meditation, the Sacrament of Penance will be available as well. Confessors are available at a confessional uh, in the back and also behind here, uh, there's two confessionals you'd be welcome to avail yourself of the Sacrament of Penance. In a special way, not only do I welcome all of you, but a special word of welcome to uh, Cardinal Justin Regali, the Archbishop Emeritus of Philadelphia, who was with us last evening as preacher for the Liturgy of the Lord's Supper. And I'm especially grateful for the presence of Father Robert Barron, who is the preacher for the seven last words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father Barron, well-known to many of you, a priest of the Archdiocese of Chicago and the, um, the, uh, the one who uh, gave us the excellent uh, acclaimed Catholicism series that is now uh, sweeping the country, a great source of grace, mercy, and, and uh, evangelization. So, Father Barron, we especially welcome you and thank you for being with us to lead us in prayer for the seven last words. And a welcome as well to those who unite with us in prayer on radio and television. These three hours will conclude, obviously, at 3 o'clock. And at 3.30, we have the official liturgy of the church, the passion, the liturgy of our Lord's passion at 3.30, to which you're all welcome. Father Baron,
1: Praise be Jesus Christ. Remnants, thank you so much for that kind welcome. And thank you for inviting me to give these... Um, talks on this very important moment of prayer. You know, yesterday I um, flew into New York, and it was a day much like today, really bright, beautiful, clear, and the plane was flying into LaGuardia, so I came right up Manhattan Island, and um, looking down at the buildings, and all standing out with such clarity. What occurred to me was, you know, many people say New York is the capital of modern secularism, and that's true to some degree, I suppose. But whenever I look down on New York, I think of holy New York. I think, for example, of Thomas Merton, whose conversion commenced when he was just down Fifth Avenue at the old Scribner's Bookstore, and he saw a book by the French philosopher Etienne Gilson. Merton bought that book, and it started the process by which he became a Catholic. He was, of course, baptized up in Morningside Heights, up at Corpus Christi Church. I think, two of Rose Hawthorne, the daughter of the great Nathaniel Hawthorne, the American novelist. She began her saintly work among victims of cancer here in New York. I think too of Dorothy Day, who founded the first of the Catholic worker houses down in the Lower East Side. And of course I think of one of my great heroes. It's my privilege to be standing in his pulpit now. I'm talking about Archbishop Fulton Sheen, buried just a few yards from where I'm standing. And so it's really a privilege, Your Eminence, thank you again for inviting me to this holy city of New York. Well, friends, we're going to be here for some time. And that, to me, is one of the great virtues of the Tre Ore prayer. We are such a go-go society. We're always moving somewhere, restless, uneasy. It's now time to sit. And in real time, to watch with the Lord Jesus Christ as he suffers and dies on the cross so maybe put aside your restless thoughts put aside your preoccupations your worries and let's spend this good quality time with the Lord what's going to happen of course is some preaching some proclamation of the scripture some beautiful music Thomas Aquinas said that God's providence extends to particulars. A fancy way of saying that God is providentially present to every one of us here and now. God has brought everyone here to this place for a purpose. Maybe to hear something from my sermons. Maybe just to hear a word from scripture. Maybe something from one of the hymns let that wash over you during these three hours set aside your cares anxieties preoccupations let the Lord speak Christ was high priest he reconciled us to God and that's why his cross is a great altar where a sacrifice took place Christ is king the one who guides us to the Father. And that's why his cross is a great throne from which he reigns. But Christ was also prophet, the speaker of the divine truth. And that's why his cross is a pulpit from which a last great sermon went forth. The seven last words constitute that sermon. Let's now prayerfully attend to it. We invite you now to stand and join in singing Soul of my Savior.
0: to the place called the Skull. They crucified him and the criminals there, one on his right, the other on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do.
1: Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Friends, how central to the life and ministry of Jesus was forgiveness. His words to the paralyzed man, who symbolizes all of us paralyzed by sin. My son, your sins are forgiven. To the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more at the very heart of the great prayer he taught us forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us forgiveness was central to Jesus preaching and ministry here's the one thing I want you to take from this particular sermon forgiveness is not primarily an internal act not a mere intention or the forgiveness is an act The Bible sees sin as a great swamp. It's a great morass. It's a great net or network in which we find ourselves trapped. You're unkind to me, so I'll be unkind to you, which awakens in you an answering unkindness, which awakens in me an answering cruelty. On and on it goes across space and time, Injustice awakens answering injustice. Violence awakens counterviolence. And before you know it, we find ourselves stuck, trapped. What's forgiveness? Not a mere intention. Forgiveness is a way out. Forgiveness is a path forward. Now, to grasp this, I think it's very helpful to look at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And we find those still startling, challenging words. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who maltreat you. Someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn and give them the other. Someone takes you to trial for your coat, give them your cloak as well love your enemies do you see how that little line shows the way out you become my enemy through some act of cruelty or violence or injustice what's the natural response I will be cruel and unjust to you it is only when we muster the courage and the capacity to love our enemies that we can break that cycle Attend to to the famous examples that Jesus gives Someone strikes you on the right cheek. What should you do? Well, you know in the face of violence or injustice There are two classical responses aren't there true in the animal kingdom as well as in the human society The two responses are fight or flight Someone strikes you well fight back Fight fire with fire Making the whole world hotter Gandhi said that, an eye for an eye, yes, making the whole world blind. We know that in the long run, answering violence with violence tends not to solve the problem. So the second great response is flight. Someone's cruel, unjust to you, well, run away, acquiesce, give in. That solved the problem? No, it just confirms the violent person or institution in it's violence. What's Jesus giving us here? He's giving us a way out. A third way, if you want. He says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, well, see, in his time, you wouldn't have used your left hand for any kind of interaction. It was unclean. Therefore, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, it means they're hitting you like this with the back of their hand. It was a sign of contempt, the way you treat a slave or an inferior. Someone does that to you, what should you do? Fight back? No. Run away? Uh Uh-uh. Jesus says, stand your ground and turn the other cheek. What are you doing thereby? you you are signaling to that person that you refuse to cooperate with the world he's living in you refuse to be treated that way again you mirror back to the violent person his violence hoping thereby to lure him into a new spiritual and moral space let me give you an example bishop Tutu of South Africa before he was a famous figure he was a simple priest was making his way along a raised wooden platform over the muddy uh, sidewalk and he came face to face with a white man who was a racist broadly he said I do that's turning the other cheek not fighting back but not running but rather in this humorous provocative way mirroring back to that person his violence another example from Mother Teresa I saw some of her sisters here in the front famous story about Mother Teresa finding a abandoned starving child in the streets of Calcutta took her by the hand brought her to a baker's shop and begged for some bread the baker spat full in Mother Teresa's face at which point the saint said thank you for that gift for me now perhaps something for the child fighting back? no but not running away rather mirroring back to that violent person his violence hoping thereby to draw him into a new space you know we knew this principle and practiced it brilliantly with John Paul II I remember very vividly the days when he arrived in Poland. Many of us were afraid of World War III breaking out. John Paul went into the belly of the beast, confronted this tyrannical government, but didn't fight it with the weapons of the world. But by God, he didn't run. What did he do? He stood his ground and talked about God, and talked about creation human dignity, human freedom, human rights. And as he did, you remember that first time he visited Warsaw, June of 1979, as he did, the crowds began to chant, we want God, we want God, we want God. And the chant went on, they say, for 15 minutes. Can you imagine almost a million people chanting, we want God? And they say what John Paul did during that chant was he simply turned to the Polish government who were sitting behind him as if to say you're finished (laughs) he didn't fight them but by God he didn't run rather he mirrored back to them their injustice mirrored back to them their violence to see hoping to draw them into a new spiritual space someone told me when I was a kid back in the 1970s that the Soviet Union would collapse with barely a shot being fired and one of the main protagonists would be the Pope of Rome I would think you're in a fantasy world that's exactly what happened though Peter Morin along with Dorothy Day the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement said it's time that we blow up some of the dynamite of the church dunamis Paul's word means power power. What's the power? Not worldly power, but the power of forgiving love, which can indeed change lives and can change whole societies. We've seen it happen. You know, a few years ago, in the seminary where I teach, a student told me about a martial art called Aikido. This kid was trained in the martial arts, and Aikido is a martial art. It's an art of war. But the purpose of Aikido is not to engage the opponent directly, fighting fire with fire. Rather, in Aikido, you use the momentum and violence of your opponent against him. So as he comes at you, you definitely get out of the way, send him flying. You definitely move out of the way as he comes with his full weight against you. He told me the purpose of Aikido is not to harm or kill your opponent, The purpose is to leave your opponent laughing on the ground, realizing he can't possibly defeat you. Do you see how turning the other cheek, as I've been describing it, forgiveness, in this sense, is a kind of Aikido. It's a way of responding to the violence of the world that actually extricates us from the morass of sin actually is a way out of the great swamp of violence meeting counter-violence. Now, now, think of that cross of Jesus Christ. Thomas Aquinas said, the purest exemplification of the Beatitudes is the cross. Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, pray for those who maltreat you. Where do we see that? We see it precisely in the cross of Jesus. And we hear it in those magnificent words, Father, forgive them. What is that? It's not fighting fire with fire, but by God it's not running. Do you see how the cross of Jesus is a kind of great act of Aikido? As he allows all of the darkness of the world to wash over him and then be swallowed up in the ever greater divine mercy. Not fighting fire with fire making the whole world hotter, not an eye for an eye making the whole world blind, but swallowing up all the dysfunction evil of the world precisely through the divine forgiveness. That's why we say that Jesus is the Lamb of God, who, listen, takes away the sin of the world. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do.
0: Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Rather, He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. At the name of Jesus, every knee must bow. And tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the name of Jesus, every knee must bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Almighty and everlasting God, you willed that our Savior should become man and undergo the torment of the cross as an example of humility for all humanity. Grant that we may follow in His suffering as to share in His glorious resurrection. We ask this through the same Christ our Lord.
1: Won't you please stand
3: and sing, O Sacred Head Surrounded.
0: Second word. Now one of the criminals hanging there reviled Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The other, however, rebuking him, said in reply, Have you no fear of God? For you are subject to the same condemnation. And indeed, we have been condemned justly. For the sentence we received corresponds to our crimes. But this man has done nothing criminal. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He replied to him, Amen, I say to you. Today you will be with me in paradise.
1: And I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Friends, what is it about the words of the good thief that are so moving to us? Jesus, remember me. And what's so powerful about this response? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Dismas is the name, of course, the tradition gives to the good thief. We know almost nothing about him. But we know the essentials. He realized he was a sinner, and he reached out to Jesus. And fellow sinners, that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. Chesterton said, there are saints in my religion. That just means people that know they are sinners. Dismas would never be tempted to say, I'm okay and you're okay, would he? He knows there's something very wrong with him. Remember the song was out a couple years ago by Christina Aguilera? Pretty melody, but she says in that song, I am beautiful in every single way and your words can't get me down. Well, that's the language of modern, you know, sort of self-esteem culture, but it's not the language of the Bible. Rather, those who are directed toward the light, John the Cross said that, are more, not less aware of their sins. That's why this man so close to Jesus, in such proximity to him, realizes that he's a sinner. Very good. And he reaches out to the right source. Now, here's the thing, though, that's very peculiar. Here's a man who's being crucified. Whom does he reach out to? Another man being crucified. I mean, doesn't the other thief seem to have it more correct? I mean, hey, if you're the son of God, save yourself and us. But the good thief, being crucified, reaches out to another man being crucified who says to him this day you will be with me in paradise friends here's the high paradox of the christian faith thomas aquinas said happiness now please put this on your screensaver put it up on your refrigerator any place you'd see it take it to the bank spiritually Thomas Aquinas said you want to be happy here's the formula despise what Jesus despised on the cross and love what Jesus loved on the cross, you'll be happy now take my word for it here, I'll try to explain this but I think you can take that right to the bank all kinds of self help books aren't there about what makes us happy, you can find a thousand of them at Barnes and Noble throw them all away. Here's what makes you happy. Despise what Jesus despised on the cross. Love what he loved on the cross. You'll be happy. Now, how do we make sense of that? Thomas Aquinas said, following St. Augustine, we are all wired for God. That's true of everybody in this room. It's true of all the new atheists. It's true of people that deny God explicitly. Like it or not, we are wired for God because we are wired for ultimate happiness honestly fellow sinners does anything in this world make you finally happy we all know the answer to that question but Aquinas said in our sin we make four great mistakes we search for God for ultimate happiness in four bad places in wealth in pleasure in power and in honor I found dealing with people over the years dealing with my own weak soul there's no exception to that. what we tend to look for as a substitute for God are wealth, pleasure, power, or honor anything wrong with wealth? no, not in itself but wealth isn't God And therefore, what happens? When you hook your infinite desire for God onto wealth, you will become, in short order, dissatisfied and addicted. You know, the old spiritual masters used that word concupiscence, meaning errant desire. But I think a very legitimate rendering of concupiscence in our time would be addiction. I've hooked my desire for God onto wealth, so what do I do? strive and strive and strive for wealth. And let's say my great dream comes true. I have my first million by 30. What does that produce? A buzz. It produces a great delight. What happens to that buzz, though? Talk to anyone addicted to, to alcohol or to drugs, pornography. What happens? That buzz wears off. Because we're not wired for wealth. We're wired for God. Now what do I do? Now I start striving harder, harder, harder to get more wealth. And maybe by 40 I make my first 10 million, which produces a buzz, which lasts a shorter time. And now I panic. And I find myself moving obsessively and addictively around that goal of wealth. About 10 years ago, I was working at a parish on the North Shore. That's uh, the suburbs north of Chicago, the wealthiest area of Chicago. I finished Mass, I was still in the rectory, and the knock came to the door. And there appeared a man, typical North Shore gentleman, about 45, well dressed, beautifully coiffed, well spoken, well educated. Father, could we talk? I said, sure. He sat down and he said, Father, all my dreams have come true. And so summoning all my training in psychology and theology, and I said, great. (laughs) And then he said, and I'm miserable. Terrific, terrific bit of self-diagnosis. I said, what were your dreams? They were all the North Shore dreams. The first million by 30, head of my company by 40, 10 million by 50 and he had them all he had the wealth, the home, the power he wanted and he was miserable and I told him why that you're not wired for that, you're wired for God wealth is fine in itself but it's not God and when you make it God you become miserable and addicted what's the second great substitute? pleasure anything wrong with pleasure? No, Catholics like pleasure. Pleasure of food and drink and sex and sensuality. Hilaire Belloc said, wherever the Catholic sun does shine, there's music and laughter and good red wine. That's Catholicism. We, we're not puritanical. In fact, I always find puritanism is a sign of spiritual corruption. We're not dualists, we're not puritan. But, but, pleasure isn't God. When I turn into God, in short order, I become addicted to it. Now, again, talk to anybody who's fallen into an addiction to alcohol, or to drugs, or to pornography, or to sex. What's happened there is a finite good, namely pleasure, has been turned into God. And that turns me, in short order, into an addict. What's the third one? Power. Power good? Yes, God's described as all powerful, so power can't be bad in itself. Power rightly exercised in church and society, in families, is a good thing. But listen now, power isn't God. When I turn into God, in short order, I become addicted to it. Remember the Lord of the Rings films we all watched, what, 10 years ago now? What's the ring? It's a ring of power, isn't it? I mean, Tolkien intuited that with great clarity. The most seductive temptation is the temptation toward power. Do you remember the scene of all three movies, you know, which features great battles and orcs and all sorts of wicked things, but you know what scene I found most frightening in The Lord of the Rings? In the very beginning, when Gandalf, the great wizard, great positive figure, right? comes to the home of Bilbo, who had the ring. And Gandalf, the great Gandalf, the good Gandalf, sees the ring of power. And there's this, there's this frightening moment when you can see in his eyes that he's attracted to it. And you think, oh, gosh, if Gandalf goes bad, we're in serious trouble. But even the great Gandalf, and of course, at the climax of that movie, Frodo, who was the courageous bearer of the ring, who resisted its temptation its lure at the end even frodo gives in. you know a few years ago my nephew is now 12 It must have been eight or nine years ago he's a little guy and our whole family was out at mundelein seminary where i teach and for fourth of july and at a certain point we all had to cross the street to get to the ball field and so people are saying oh be careful be careful it might be a car coming well drew who was three or four at the time There was one person in that group he could possibly boss around. His little sister, Lauren, who was about two. And what did I see Drew doing? But turning to Lauren with great energy. Don't, don't, watch it, don't go. And I thought the one person he could boss around, he did. Power from the time we're little till the time we're old is a great seductive thing. That's why, for example, in Matthew's gospel, the three great temptations the devil gives to Christ. What's the highest one? the temptation to power. You turn power into God, you become addicted to it in short order. Last one, honor. There are many people that, they don't really care that much about wealth, pleasure, or power. They can live without those. They've got those in the right order. But they are addicted to honor. Titles, rewards, being recognized, the esteem of others. When I was a little kid, I would bring my papers into my father. My father was a wonderful man. And I'd show him my papers and my tests with their, you know, good grades on them. And he said, kiddo, that's terrific. I'm so proud of you. Well, that gave me a buzz, you know, as it does. We like to be honored. And so I'd go back to school and I'd strive and work and work to get those grades so I could get the honor from my father. And he would dutifully give it to me year in, year out. But of course, in time, that buzz wore off. I thought, I need to be honored by more people than my dad. I mean, he's he's my father, he'll honor me anyway. So I better get my high school teachers, I better get my college professors. I'll even go across the ocean to Paris and get my doctoral teachers to honor me. I was ordained about two years maybe, and I had just said mass, delivered a homily, which I thought was pretty good. And I'm giving out communion to the people, body of Christ, body of Christ. And a man came up to me and I said, the body of Christ. And he said, that was the worst sermon I ever heard. <laughs> well, I mean, when you're an honor junkie, that's a little difficult to take in, you know. Honor's good. Aquinas said, honor is the flag of virtue. It's a good way to think about it, isn't it? That when you're honored, it's a flag that's meant to signal to others, oh, look, there's something worth emulating. So honor is never for the honoree, it's for others. It's good perspective on it. So honor is not bad in itself, but it's not God. And when we turn it into God, we become, in short order, addicted to it. Now, remember Aquinas. You want to be happy? Despise what Jesus despised on the cross and love what he loved. What did he despise on the cross? Wealth. Jesus, naked, nailed to the cross the end of his life. What does he have in terms of wealth? Nothing. He is detached from wealth. Pleasure, that's the good life. Jesus, the end of his life, is at the limit of physical, psychological, even spiritual suffering. Power? He has none of it. Nailed to the cross, he can't even move. Honor? They laugh at him. They spit at him as he dies, nailed to an instrument of torture near the gate of the city of Jerusalem. Despise what he despised on the cross. In other words, be detached from it. Wealth, pleasure, power, and honor. And love what he loved. What did he love? Doing the will of his father. And it was the very detachment from those four things that allowed him so fully to do the will of his Father. Today, today, he says to Dismas, you'll be with me in paradise. Here, friends, again, it's the high paradox of our faith. But Thomas Aquinas said it. Look at Christ crucified. Hold him right now in your mind's eye and realize though it, it runs counter to all of our expectations there's a picture of someone in paradise. There's a picture of the attitude. Lord Jesus
0: on the night before you suffered you said to your Apostles this is how all will know but you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. You brought good tidings to the poor. Let us be your messengers to the poor. You healed the sick. Let us bring them your help and consolation. Lovingly you, call the children to you. May our example lead them to goodness and truth. You love the sinner even while hating the sin, keep us from harsh judgments of others. You have taken upon yourself our burdens, give us the grace to bear the burdens of one another. Lord God, keep us in your love so that on the day of judgment we may come to you in joy. We ask this through Christ our Lord.
3: Won't you please join in singing Our Holy Jesus.
0: Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary of Magdala. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple there whom he loved, he said to his mother, woman, behold, your son. K.A.T.H. 910 A T H nine ten A.